What is happening, everybody? Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. Good, sir. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I've seen a lot of your stuff. I think it's pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Uh, and let's just start off with that, I guess. Uh, tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and what it is you do. Yeah, so the primary focus of my YouTube channel is kind of traveling the United States. And I'd say actually more than just traveling the United States, because in the future, I'm going to be going to card shows outside the U.S., but just traveling the card shows every single weekend, showing people what the different shows have to offer between the dealer showcases, between people attending the show, just having fun with it. And then I try to educate people a lot as well. So I have a whole series about showing people's different personal collections, which you're going to be on on next week's episode. Super excited for that one. Um, so I have those two different things. And the other thing is kind of educating people. I have a whole series on the channel and a book I'm working on for spotting fake cards. Since the cards have been getting a lot more popular recently, I've been seeing a lot more fakes being sold on marketplaces online and at card shows. And I wanted to educate people based around that. About a year ago, I got scammed on a hockey card, which was a uh, pure obvious fake and I missed it. And I became super educated on that card and I decided I'm going to start learning about all the different fake cards that are out there on the market, the different types of alterations. So that way other people are more informed as well. So uh, they don't get scammed out of hundreds of dollars like I did. So um, this is pretty much the primary purpose of the channel right now. What was it? The Lemieux rookie? It was. So yeah. it was pretty much the same fake that HGA just created. Mm. How I could tell is, is the eye. So the eye in the border right there, the border is too thin on that card. Uh, the, the, the shade of yellow is off as well. And the eye, uh, you can just tell with the eye, it's it's off. The uh, eye and the penguin, right? Yeah, so the eye and the penguin. If you put a real one next to the fake one and look really closely, uh, the real one is a lot slimmer. The fake one was actually thicker. And from far away, you can't tell. Like, unless you really, really looked under a loop or you zoomed in on the picture. And that's why a lot of people were thinking that HGA card was real at first. It's real. But you zoom in and you look at the colors, you look at the borders and actually analyze it you can tell it's fake and that's kind of the scary thing about some of the fake cards out there is they're getting better and unless you know the minor details on how to spot the fake card good chances people knew the hobby or even like a veteran that's been in the hobby for just a few years can get scammed yeah and i think that's kind of what was so disappointing about the hga fakes to me because you'll see a lot of people who support hga and they'll be like well, PSA, the Honus Wagner, the trimmed card and all that. And let's just ignore the fact that that was 30 years ago and it was, you know, the first card they ever graded. And the hobby, the the industry is is it exists today, did not exist then. Let's just ignore that. The the Lemieux and the Gretzky that they graded, I mean, those are known fakes, right? I mean, that uh, that's yeah. a three minute Google search, right? Hundred percent. So it's 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 even more than that too. So people always talk about the alteration of the Honus Wagner. It's not like they created a fake Honus Wagner. The card was right. real by all means. Sure, it was trimmed, and now companies look for trimming alterations. And sure, there's been stuff that's been slabbed in PSA back at SGC, you name it, that are still out there floating around. 100%, not disagreeing with that. But the difference between a real card and a fake card is a huge one. And those cards, like you said, have been around for such a long time. Uh, it's just not like you're a random person that buys that card at a show or anything like that. Sure, it can slip by, but you're a grading company. People expect you to authenticate a card. They expect you to grade a card numerically it, it's more important to authenticate a card than it is even to numerically grade a card because if you think about it uh grading companies will say something's authentic but altered and not give it a numerical grade at the very baseline you need to make sure it's a real card right like, they're not going to grade a fake card but they will authenticate a card that's been altered do you think do you think every grading company that puts a card in a case it should be 
I guess the standard that that that's them saying it's it's authentic. Yes. And if if you don't know the era, if you don't know the card, just tell them, hey, I appreciate you sending in this card. Just don't have enough information or our graders do not have enough information to fully authenticate this card. We can't tell you if it's real or fake. If you do know it's fake, let them know. Like, we don't believe this card is authentic. Thank you for sending it in. And this is why we don't think it's authentic. Be transparent with that side of things. I think a lot of the new grading companies, they don't understand that there's hundreds of years of cards. I mean, the modern era cards first started in 1887 when you started having a lot of tobacco cards out there for different sports. And there's earlier cabinet cards, obviously, before then. But like the tobacco yeah. we know about like 1887 and talk about cards now all the way through 2021. You have to know all those years, all the different intricacies. I mean, there's more brands than just Tops and Panini. There's so many different companies that have produced for 10, 15 years or even one year runs and have been out. They all have different cardboard stocks. They all have different printing patterns. They have different types of cards. Like you have to study all this material and the grading companies have been around for a while, have all these references. They've graded these cards before. So they probably have things on file as well. Like, okay, we're grading, let's say for example, a Copes from 1915. These are black border cards. We know that this is the type of alterations we've seen with the Copes cards and they can look up a file and have all the data and information there to grade it. However, if you're a brand new grading company, this might be the first time you ever see a Copes card and you have no idea what this is even is. And you're like, right. all right, I don't know what this is. What do you think? Four, four. Okay. Next card. They're not going to do that full research. And I'm not saying all grading companies are like that because sure there might be some that are going to do research and find reference materials. But when you have an explosion of hundreds of companies overnight, what are the odds that the companies have all those reference materials, people that have been in the hobby for that long, where they can tell you all the intricacies on all these different types of cards can spot all the alterations. I don't know. Well, and I actually wanted to ask you, I've wanted to ask you about this for a little while now, because I mean, you're a younger dude, especially like in the hobby. And when you look at our demographics on YouTube, they're, you know, a little bit older than me. So and you're a little bit younger than me. So, you know, pretty young dude, but I mean, you've taken kind of this position as someone who really knows cards and can spot fakes. And, you know, you kind of do deep dives when you look at them on, on your videos, which I appreciate. I mean, how did you come about like gathering that knowledge, right? How do I identify fakes of certain cards and things like that? Yeah. So the fake side of thing. I've been learning a lot of that the last year or so. Sure, a lot of the information I've gathered from being in the hobby. I mean, it started probably when I was really, really small. So between talking to dealers, talking to my dad who owned, once owned a card shop. So I learned a little bit about alterations through there. Yeah. But my full deep dive has been pretty much a year. I've been going on different forums, different websites, talking to different dealers. There's a dealer out here in Florida that had literally a shoebox full of fake cards. And we went through documenting each of them, kind of showing what how like why Beckett graded this card as a fake, not graded, but labeled a card as a fake and just taking yeah. down notes and looking at all the different card stocks. And once you learn the basic principles of authenticating a card, it's not fully perfect. Obviously there's some better fakes than there is out there, but like you can tell like 95% of them. Hmm. And is that 95% kind of like more like 1940 and post or does it like apply to the pre-war stuff and i mean because you see a lot of different sizes and i assume a lot of yeah. different materials i mean that, that that changed over time too so i'd say it's like a mixture um the one area which i'm not perfect at spotting face yet is pretty much the 90s like basketball inserts and that's where like, you have what mm -hmm. people like card porn that post that on instagram people on blow up forums that look at those how there's a lot of different alterations with either serial numbered cards or different oh right yeah things but what makes those tough is a lot of these are actually built from scratch overseas and then they come over here. It's not like the vintage fakes where people either try to photocopy them or put them on really, really bad stock. This stuff, like once you learn, like I said, once you learn the basics on those type of cards, you can look at a card right away and like, all right, this is fake. 
I mean, one of the things that's benefits for older cards, you can literally just smell a card that's old and you can tell right away if it's been printed or not. Yeah. It's super sounds super weird, but you can just smell the card and like, all right, this, this doesn't smell old. Something's big. <laughs> you look at it under more details, whether it's a loop or you just look at it closer with your eye and are you like, all right, these are some defects on this type of card. This is fake. So if, if y'all go to a show and you see Ryan smelling a card, he's trying to decide if it smells like grandpa or not. And if it doesn't, he's like, ah, it's got to go, you know, get it out of here. It's weird, man. But that's one, <laughs> one of the easiest ways, just smell a card. That's so wild, man. But it's so cool too. I mean, what kind of sets you down this, this, this path of uh, like, Hey, I want to know how to identify fakes. Like that's the big thing. Oh, you talked about the Lemieux. Yeah, I mean, it was honestly the Lemieux situation. I had that happen. I think it was like January or something like that. I got burned and I was like, all right, well, I'm already going to all these shows. So I'll talk to everyone. I don't want other people to get burned. It's kind of like a passion at that point. And then once I started learning more, I was like, all right, let's write a book about it. And there it is. That's so cool, man. When's the book coming out? So I wanted to have it out in October. I'm still editing it right now. So it's it's fully written. Uh, it's about probably 60, 70% done with the editing phase. Once that's finalized, then I'm going to start getting it printed out. I'm going to go through Amazon for that and then start marketing it. That's pretty neat. So does Amazon have like a pretty simple like print your book here feature or something like pretty that? Much. Yeah. Or so you can get them printed out. There's like two different rates, whether you're like the publisher rate and you can print out gets them sent to you and then you got people just buy them directly on amazon so you don't have to ship them out but what i'm gonna do for probably like the first 100 books or so is i'll go out there buy 100 copies i mean steven will sign them and then just ship them out to people and then after that it's just gonna all be through amazon how are people gonna be able to buy their books off you, or your books off of you yeah so i have a website already breakout sports cards so i'll just create a page for that for the shop and have the book on there and make 100 copies available those sell out fast. Maybe do another run of those, which are signed things like that, but probably just first 100 there and then put the rest on Amazon. Yeah, man, that's, that's so cool. I'm looking forward to it. I definitely have to pick it up. Uh, I mean, I definitely will. And so obviously it's about like, you know, fake cards and I did, but what more is it about? Are you doing like a broad, like this is how you identify a fake card, yeah. you know, or is it like deep dives? The first 50 pages of the book is just literally how you can spot fake cards and alterations, like history of different grading companies, cases, like everything that you need to know to arm yourself going into a card show. Like you could just read the first 50 pages themselves and you're going to gain a lot of knowledge that's not fully out there or just things that mm -hmm. you should have before buying a card. And the next 100 pages are the top 50 fake cards. So I have one page which has like the bio of a card or player. And then the next page is a comparison of the real versus fake card along with mm -hmm. bullet points detailing this is how you can spot the fake on that. So that way, like if you see these versions of fakes out there, you can tell right away. And I try to do the most common version of each of the fake cards, like things like the Michael Jordan, there's like 10 or 15 fakes. So I can't put 15 different fake Michael Jordan cards in there. I was kind of broad. I did the most common fake I saw out there and put the bullet points of how this card was fake versus the real one, but gave everyone the ammo. So then they go out there and, and be able to determine it themselves. Yeah. All right. Technical di difficulties. We had to pause there for a second, but coming back. All right. I, I want to ask you for a little bit now, and maybe it's something you've said on your channel before and I've missed it or something, but in your channel logo, you know, breakout cards, you got lefty Grove up there. Why lefty? Honestly, because I love the 1933 Gaudi card of lefty Grove. It's one of my favorite like visual cards. So that was one of the cards that I have. I still have that PSA right now, but just one of my favorite in the hobby. What's uh, so favorite about it? Just the design on it. I just, when I look at it, it just reminds me of like classic era baseball cards. I know a lot of people really like, the Dizzy Dean or the Babe Ruth in that set, but Grove's my favorite. What's his um 
I guess his pot, what's his stance, his mechanics on that card? Is he just standing there or is he kind of throwing the ball? What's going on? Let me look up the picture again. It's been a while since I actually looked it up. I know it sounds kind of, sounds kind of embarrassing. <laughs> did he have multiple cards in the set too? Because I know some guys did, right? No, he has one. So yeah, he's actually throwing. He's finishing up his rotation. Okay. They just but, have a background of a field. Kind of kind of reminds me of like a 1953 Tops card. Like if you look at how the 53s are the paintings and look really cool. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's pretty good. And we'll let's keep going with that then. So what is it that you like to collect and you know, how, how are you building your collection? Yeah. So I have quite a few PCs like we we're talking about over there. I'm not going to dive all of them into the video. Unfortunately, some of my, some of my, unfortunately, some of my subscribers end up buying what I collect and I can't afford them anymore, but yeah. I'll just be broad and say, I, I, my main PC is pre-war cards. So anything before World War II, um, but I collect numerous types of numerous different sports with that. I do dabble in modern as well. Um, so my main modern PCs, which I have, I have, I have a bunch of Kershaw cards, a bunch of Giancarlo Stanton, bought the wrong mic, unfortunately, in the 2010-2011 era. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, oh, well, Stanton still hit 500 home runs. And then uh, Manny Machado, and then I have Flaherty and Bueller. It's amazing to me. So. That's awesome. But you're just talking about Stanton and that joke just kind of put me on a tangent here. It's amazing to me. You know, all these people talk about Hall of Famers, like Hall of Fame safe. Hall of Fame is going to be money, you know? And like, there's so many guys that make the Hall of Fame that are in the Hall of Fames of the three major sports in the United States that just aren't worth money. Like, no one cares, no. you know? Like, it's not safe. Oh, well, it's there, there's a few different things about it. It's the education side of things. So, baseball has well over 100 members in the Hall of Fame. I think it's close to 200 or so, maybe 300 don't know someone fact check me but since there's so many different players out there with that you really have to do a deep dive and know all these players find out what year is a rookie card or what jersey cards or autograph cards are out there available and for the common collector they're not going to do it they just want to have yep. their cards printed on every year they'll watch espn watch baseball games or anything like that hear the names of players and they'll say okay i like this player he had a home run today and buy that card but for the difference between someone that's been collecting for a very long time, those type of collectors are going to do a deep dive, learn the history of all the cards in the sport. They're going to go all the way back 1887, learn about old judge cards, learn about Allen and Ginter, learn about Goodwin champions, learn about Mayo cards and progress then into your early 1900s where you have like your T204s, T205, T206 cards, then to your 30s or to, in your 20s and you have your strip cards to the 30s where you have your Gaudi run. Then you have your 40s where Bowman started taking over at the late end of the 40s. They had play ball cards, which was pre-Bowman, same company from 39 to 41. Then you had your Bowman cards all the way up through 55. And they lost a lawsuit with Tops. Tops ended up taking over the Monopoly all the way until pretty much the 80s. Then you had all these other brands just explode out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and you had all your 90s junk wax. Everything was crazy. 90s parallel session. And then 2000s again, where we saw resurgence in Tops just completely dominating the market. Once they got that exclusive license in, I think it was like 2010, 2011. Um, don't remember the exact year. I know 2010 had some Upper Deck. I don't think Upper Deck was in 2011. Panini was unlicensed. Yeah, so I think around like 2010, 2011, Tops took over again. And Tops has been that exclusively. I mean, you just have to learn about how everything kind of progresses over time. You have to know all these different names, all the different eras. And it's a yeah. lot of, not something that you can learn in three months, six months, or a year. And especially the hobby house, so many people are brand new to it. And people collect a lot of different sports, not just collecting baseball. Now people are collecting basketball cards because of the crazy amount of money 
that came out of nowhere with that side of things. People are still collecting football cards. You might collect hockey cards. There's so much out there and it can overwhelm people. So learning about some of the Hall of Famers might take a few years for people. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, I, I mean, I, like I said, I like all three sports, but I've really gone into football and then I really, really dug into it once I started looking at it a little, a little bit because I'm like, oh, you can get the Mickey Mantle of football for like two grand, you know, his rookie card. Whereas, you know, Mickey Mantle, you know, who knows who's, how much. Who's your Mickey Mantle of football? I would say Joe Namath. I was thinking about that today, okay. actually, when I was running. I was thinking, I was like, you know, I think Joe Namath, I think. That's, I would. I hey, go ahead. My opinion, I don't know. I, I think like from like an iconic top standpoint, I'd probably say Jim Brown. Like when I think of iconic tops football cards, the Jim Brown rookie is the first one that comes in my mind. And I know obviously the 52 Mantle is not a rookie card of, uh, obviously uh, 1952 tops isn't a rookie card of Mickey Mantle. The Jim Brown is actually a rookie card, but that's like the first football card I think of when I think of vintage football. That's interesting. The Jim, I, it's definitely, I did a tier list and they're, they're both up there, like what they're one and two, you know, and Unitas is there too. But I think when you look at their careers, like, you know, Joe Namath really had that flash and that pizzazz and people really liked him. And then, what I think is kind of interesting is you go to if you fast forward 50 years, 60 years now, people are like Mickey Mantle wasn't as good as people think he was. And they say that about Joe Namath, too. You know, so yeah. I think it's kind of interesting. Well, I will say, though, Mantle is still probably a top 20 player of all time. I don't know if Namath for sure is a top 20 player or even like a top 10 quarterback of all time. I think that's yeah. the difference. I know it's popular because, I mean, Broadway Joe Namath, all the, all the different movies and everything like that and commercials and everything that he was in. But kind of interesting. Yeah, I do. I do think that if you did like a top whatever list, Mantle would would probably do better in baseball than Namath would do in in football. And I don't know, football football is weird though. It's so hard to cr cross generations because it's just so different. You know, I saw I saw a comment on YouTube. I know it's ridiculous to cite this, but they were uh, they were debating who's like the best quarterbacks of all time. And somebody's like autogram should be in the discussion. And somebody's like he almost has as many interceptions as touchdowns. This is in the fifties. And like the person that wrote that comment just has no idea that basically every other quarterback in that era had more interceptions and touchdowns. Like yep. it's actually amazing that, you know, he was even close, you know, and, and, and in the positive. And it's just crazy how the errors change. See the issue with a lot of this stuff too. So baseball, people use war as a, just a general reference point to compare players from different eras. And that has flaws. I'm not going to disagree with that, but you have a standardization of like how good a player was based on the era compared to other players. And football just doesn't really have that stat like war right now where you can compare people cross generational where you can say, OK, well, Autogram has a war of, let's say, like 95. And then Tom Brady has a war of 120. Obviously, Brady's better than Autogram. Yeah. Football just doesn't have that really ingrained into them. I'm sure some clubhouses probably have developed their own advanced stats based around war where they already have their own rankings for current players. Maybe not all the way for players back in the 50s or so, but who knows? Yeah, and well, and even on that point, like it's still difficult because, like, if you go back to the '60s, you know, guys were getting paid to hit on average. You know, like the people cared about average. That was the big yeah. statistic. And now, because war is such a big number, war is heavily influenced by power. So Josh Donaldson, you know, says launch angle is important. Let me figure this out. And it's just the game evolves over time. And yeah, I mean, you know, power was so rare. I mean, even 15 years ago, if a if a shortstop was hitting 30 home runs, they'd probably in the MVP talks. And today, probably half the shortstops in a league hit 30 home runs. Like, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I think also with the development side of things, I mean, they're going to take third basements now and push them to shortstop. And on top of that, we know about the juiced baseball too. So they definitely changed things up with that. Yeah. The juice baseball, is that a real thing? We know it's juiced? No question? 
believe so. I mean, there's a lot of different studies based around it. And yeah. well, I mean, there's some differences between the seams and as minuscule mm-hmm. as it is, I mean, if you think about it um, from the physics standpoint, uh, between how fast the baseball is actually going in the air and the wind resistance and everything like that, I mean, it can add up, especially when you're throwing a baseball 100 miles an hour, you're hitting it off the bat 110, 115 miles an hour. I mean, very, very small details on anything can change. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much, you know. You're you're talking about adding three to five feet to balls to probably increase home runs by ten percent or something, or probably you know maybe more than that. I know. Right? Yeah. So, and then so let's go back to your your uh, pre-war stuff. So you said you collect a lot of pre-war, and is it mostly baseball? It is not. It's actually a mixture of a lot of different sports. So I'd say uh, probably like thirty or forty percent baseball, but I do collect as well a lot of cricket. That's what my subscribers. Uh, unfortunately started buying up when i mentioned it a few times rest in peace my cricket rookie run why cricket you you like cricket or is it something it's, interesting in the hobby honestly the closest sport to baseball so cricket <laughs> okay. crick, cricket was uh like a more of a noble sport before baseball baseball was for poor people cricket was for like upper class that's why that's why baseball kind of took off in america rather than cricket i mean that's if you look if you look overseas Cricket's huge in India, it's huge in Australia, mm-hmm. and it's huge in the United Kingdom. And has a deep, rich history of sports cards as well. Uh, the first cricket cards were in 1896, uh, like tobacco card issues. And mm-hmm. there's some other stuff be- a little bit before that. I mean, they're kind of like die cut stuff, but I'm kind of choosing to ignore that. The first set was in like 1896. Wills, they had 50 cricketers in there. And um, they've been producing since then. And Tops was producing cricket cards in 2011. Uh, so, that first 2011 top set is actually really, really good. Full of ton of like Hall of Fame cricketers, their first tops cards and everything like that. Kind of how I think of like 1952 tops for baseball. I see a lot of parallels between that and the cricket attacks in 2011. So I, I just see a lot in with it, and especially how tops lost their license. If they just keep pushing the cricket side of things, I think cricket could be that next sport for them to fall back on. You think so? That's interesting. I mean, I guess I could, you know, like you said, huge appeal across the world, you know, especially other parts of the world, I should say. So I guess you've certainly got the um, the populations there, you know, if they're interested. Yeah. And the thing is, too, like the UK collector base, I know a lot of us American YouTubers don't talk about it. UK collectors are probably the most dedicated and most educated people out there on sports cards. Like mm. these guys take collecting to the next level. They know every single player in the sets. They know how the sets are made. They know all the different set years, what they do over there, they don't collect singles. They collect full sets. They put them in binders and that's how they collect cards over here. In America, we buy singles, we get them graded and get slabs. They don't slab a lot of their cards over there. So when you look at pop reports between a card that was printed in the United Kingdom and a card that was printed in America, they're always way less than the United Kingdom because they don't care about grading. They want to actually physically hold onto the card. They want to have the full sets with them. It's just a completely different collecting culture between over there and here. And, the collectors over there are so, so dedicated. Do you think that could change over time for the UK? I think it's happening with soccer cards because now you're getting younger people into it. And that's, I mean, because like to me, what you just described is like, and that's how people collected in the US 25, 30 years ago. You know, like, is it just a natural trans, trans, uh, transformation to go to singles or was that, would that culture change? I mean, you're saying young people are going to change it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the younger people getting into soccer card, they're going to continue to focus on singles. I've already seen a lot of younger people get into older vintage soccer uh, for like with like 50s, 60s, and some pre-war as well. So 
I think over time that's slowly going to change, especially as younger people grow up and soccer becomes more relevant within the hobby, which I mean, it's exploded in the last two years. We're seeing another basketball effect with it where basketball cards were nothing five years ago. And all of a sudden they're the biggest sport out there. I think soccer will probably eventually slot into number two or number one behind basketball or above it, depending on how big the European market ends up going with this side of things. I think if we can really get the European market onto soccer cards, take off yeah that's pretty interesting and then i don't know when did you start collecting probably when i was like two three years old my dad owned the lcs so oh what it, year though so i was born in 98 so i i guess early 2000. 2000 i remember opening a ton of wax like just like cheap dollar two dollar boxes or not boxes but packs in elementary school especially like in kindergarten first grade but I know before that, my dad used to take me to the flea market and then local card shows because the dealers would give me free cards. They're like, oh, uh, yeah, I, I know, Robert, here's some free cards. And it just it worked out with that. So um, he ended up selling his LCS before I was born. But he still mm. he, he, he used me as an excuse to get back into the hobby. He's like, oh, you know, I, I have a son now. You know, he's going to collect sports cards. You know, we're getting back into the hobby. And yeah, I got to get back into it. So. I was the excuse to go back into it, but I've been ingrained with it. I, I've known dealers for such a long time going through everything like that. Yeah. This is the wildest recording session I've ever had in my life. We've both had all sorts of stuff going on. It's been a wild time. This is, I think, the 85th op, you know, chance we, we've had at this tonight. So we have no idea where we left off. So we're just going to pick up new, and we're going to talk about pre-war still. Uh, Ryan, what is the coolest pre-war card that you own right now? Yeah, so my favorite card in my collection, I have I have two of them. So the first one is a baseball card of Walter Johnson. It's a T206, but it's not your basic portrait card of Walter Johnson. The thing that makes it really cool is it's actually kind of a scarce back. Now, it's not the rarest back. Some of the rarest backs of single-digit pop reports, impossible cards to find of Hall of Famers like Walter Johnson because one of the greatest pitchers of all time, if not the greatest pitcher of all time, collectors are holding on to die and if they go to auctions they go for five six figures yeah i can't afford that type of stuff but i do have one of the rare backs it's an overprint and this it's not only just how i got the card it's the story of building up to that card so i went to a dallas card show it's like two dallas card shows ago and i saw this in this guy's display and it was about fifteen hundred dollars and he said he'd be willing to work on a trade for it so i went around the entire day trying to find deals, wheeling and dealing until I had like $1,600, $700 worth of cards. Ended up trading those cards. Now, hold on. Uh, did, did, when you talked to him at first and you saw the card, did you ask him what he was interested in trading for? Or did you just like, I'll just try to get value? I'm going to try to get it. So I I, I brought like six $700 to the show. Uh-huh, okay. I couldn't, I, I couldn't afford it. But he said he was willing to work on some trades if I got something. So sure. I was all right, cool. Let me... I'll come back a little bit later. I'll pick up some stuff. So I wheeled and dealed vintage all day. Was able to get up to about $1,500, $1,600 and made it happen. And I was really happy about it because That's I so sweet. realized the, it was the it was a, rib, a bit of a rarer back. It was also a graded at two as well. So that card, I mean, it's not going to be an auction anytime soon. I'm not going to leave it on my collection, but it's worth, let's just say a lot more than $1,500 for that. <laughs> what do you think? Or, I mean, I'm sure you know, what's the pop report on that thing at PSA? I think it was like 20. My goodness. And Walter Johnson, man, I mean, that's, I mean, he's got to be like a top seven name from that set, something like that, maybe higher than that. So, so here's the set. So first off, you have your Hannes Wagner. Of course. One overall. Now, your second most expensive card, people don't know this guy, but it's Eddie Plank. 
the thing is with the plank card is it's actually a really short printed card uh right behind the wagner what happened allegedly at least is when the printing plates broke and they just stopped printing the card so mm -hmm. it's very tough it's another one of those cards that's upper five low six figures depending on the grade it is one of the consider the four cards there's four cards that are really really tough you have plank you have wagner you have maggie and then the other one was doyle so maggie and doyle are error cards but they're not hall of famers but they go fetch for a lot of money and those are the big four of the t206 set that people have trouble completing because of that now after that you have ty cobb because ty cobb is ty cobb, ty cobb yeah. Yeah. sorry yeah no go ahead because it's ty yeah. cobb yeah. Hey, yeah so after ty cobb then you have walter johnson so there's three big pitchers mm. in the set uh, obviously i already talked about eddie plank but Outside of Eddie Plank, because he's an heir, he's a special case. You have Walter Johnson, you have Christy Mathewson, and Cy Young. Those are the three big pitchers um, from the era of pre-war that people really, really collect their cards just because they're the best in that generation. They're sure. early Hall of Fame classes, and if you just look at their stats compared to today's pitchers, it's silly. Yeah. No, nah, man, that's pretty sweet. TT06, man, I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. You've already got some of those in your collection. I have yet to pick up any. They're certainly on the list, you know. It's honestly, it's it's pretty amazing to me. You walk around shows, you can find the T two hundred six and was it the nineteen eleven cards with the super sweet yeah, so, colors? Yeah, yeah. So nineteen oh nine to nineteen eleven, it was a multi year run. Yeah, I mean those, all those cards are so sweet, and I mean obviously they're probably like no name guys. You're finding out there for like twenty and forty bucks, but like to me, they're just so important to the hobby. Like that seems like a good deal. Like I don't it, know. Well, it is. It's, so it's there's three big sets in the hobby, at least in the baseball side, um, that people go after and try to complete full sets of. So you have your Tito six set, the impossible set, which crazy. I'm not going after that anytime soon. It's too hard. Then you have your 1933 Gaudi set. And what makes that tough right now is the Nap Lajoie. The Lajoie was a card not printed in 33, but it was actually printed in 34. Has elements of both a 33 and 34 Gaudi. And people had to write to the Gaudi gum company saying that they did not have this card because they printed the whole set minus one card kind of like as a marketing ploy to get people to buy more packs and mm. it's actually babe ruth i think it's number 144 the one where he's on the field not the headshot of ruth that was actually double printed he took the place of where uh lajoy should have been oh. sheet so that card's actually a double print it's a beautiful card but there's so many of them out there so and the lajoy is the hard card in that set to complete that one for 33 gaudi I don't really consider it a 33 Gaudi card because it has mixtures of both and they printed it in 34, but I know the grading companies consider it 33 because it's numbered as a 33. It's, it's a weird case, right? Like there's arguments made for whether it should be a 1933 card, a 34 card, it shouldn't be included. Um, but the decision is a 33 Gaudi right now, at least from a hobby standpoint. So that's the hard card from that set. Beautiful set, obviously 33 Gaudi talked about uh, the card from earlier in the episode, uh, Lefty Grove. And then the third set is the 1952 tops, just because it kind of revolutionized the hobby, the big full picture cards. Tops had its monopoly run for uh, by the time their license expires for about 75 years or so. And I mean, you can't think of baseball cards without tops. And right. the, the Mickey Mantle in that set is the first hardest card to get. And then the second hardest, most people don't know, is the Ed Matthews. Matthews hit 500 home runs. Really, really great player for the Braves, obviously overshadowed by some other Braves players followed by third, which is Jackie Robinson. One other thing also to mention about that 52 set, most people think Mickey Mantle is a short print since it was a high series card, but there is rumors that it is either a double print. Well, it's not rumors. It's either a double print or it's a triple print card. So it's not as rare as some of those other 
higher numbered cards in that print run. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's wild. Thanks for that. And, I, you know, we're talking about this kind of older stuff and you're buying into that stuff and all that. But I want to ask you, when you look at trimmed cards, are you just, would you not touch a trimmed card as part of your collection? Like if you were looking at a card and you wanted to buy it, but, you, you know, it's trimmed, either it's graded trimmed, you know, you know, it's altered, or you can tell that it's trimmed. Sure. Are you just 100% against those or would you buy it, you know, given the right card? No, because you, you, I mean, you have to think about how long cards have been out, especially stuff from the 1800s. People used to trim cards on purpose. So with your outing yeah. Ginter cards out there, people put them in scrapbooks and they didn't want to have, some people didn't like the Alan Ginter advertisement at the bottom. So guess what they did? Boop. They cut off the advertisement and they put it in their scrapbook. Well, back then there's no value. It's an advertisement card. It's not what it is today. No one thought, oh, in a hundred years, some collector doesn't want that card trimmed. Yep. I, mean, I would prefer a non-trimmed card, but at the end of the day, you're talking about cards that are very, very rare. You're talking about Hall of Fame things, iconic, and you can't, you just can't afford high grades on that type of stuff. Obviously, the whales and pig collectors or people that got in way, way early on have these type of cards and they're not selling it. I mean, it's too hard to replace a high grade for a Gaudi or not Gaudi, um, Allen and Ginter from 1887. So they're going to hold on to it. So you, you find what's available and you slowly upgrade over time. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, that's a great part of the history, you know, even back in the Mayo cards too, you know, people were yep. known to have trimmed those basically as long as cards have existed, people have, people started trimming right away. Trimmings as old as having cards, but it's and, because, you know, like you said, because people didn't want the advertisements on them. Yeah. And the other thing too, is getting the backs of cards too. Um, especially when you look at old judge cards, people don't realize how thick these cards are and how heavy they are. And if you're going to put them in a scrapbook, you need the extra things, slice them in the back, splattered them on and yeah. it gets complicated is there's people that restore them um it's, i'm kind of yeah. on the fence whether you restore them or not what they'll do is they'll take like for example for old judge baseball cards of hall of famers if they know the back's been destroyed they'll take a uh old judge of another set of a non-sport sets like let's say some actors or actresses that are unknown names worth it's, it's a cool card it could be worth a little bit of money but obviously not the same as baseball so they'll take off the back on that one and they'll reapply it to the back of a baseball card and grading companies know about this. They know how to detect all that type yeah. of stuff like that. Um, but they're reapplying the backs and it looks pretty good, but they they're able to detect it. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that too. So it's funny that you brought it up. I wanted to ask you like, are you pro restoration in the hobby? I, I, I can't say I am because it, I just, for me, at least it alters the card because you, each card has a story of how long it's been. And that's why, a card will grade a one or grade a two or a three. And then when you restore a card, it's technically altering. It should just get the A grade, but then it gets complicated because then if you restore a card, that's already an A and turn it nice, like the Hannes Wagner, you know, it's, it's, it's a slippery slope. To me, I think, and I, I didn't even know this really existed. This is something I've been in for about a couple months from a mental space. And to me, I'm, I'm kind of landing on, if you do not add any materials or remove any materials from the card itself, I'm fine with you doing restoration. I mean, because they talk about being able to remove creases. If you can remove a crease without removing ink or paper or without adding ink or paper, you know, they do it somehow with steam or something. I don't really know. Well, but, at least but, from what I've seen with the creases, it's, the, the grading companies determine it's an alteration. What a lot of people will do is they'll have a crease card and they're going to put weight on the card. So then that crease is out. But when you look under a loop, it's still there. The crease is gone. They're just trying to do for the eye peel. And the problem is, so 
a lot of people complain online like, oh, my card was in a screw down. Why is it considered altered? That's why, because now the card stock has been altered when people are trying to press a card to get the crease out. It's not because a card has been in a screw down, but that's the tough part from the grading companies because these people altering cards and then the people that have cards and screw downs for 20, 30 years that didn't know better. So right. it, that, that's what kind of don't like the alteration side of things because how are you going to blame someone that puts a card in a screw down for 20, 30 years? They didn't know better because everyone at the time said, oh, you need to protect your card and screw down, protect your card and screw down. Don't put them in top loaders. I don't know for sure when top loaders were invented or not, um, but I know everyone used screw downs for the longest amount of time. So how are you going to penalize for that person? But it makes sense because because people are trying to get the creases out and alter it now. It sucks. It's kind of like, yep. I mean, it certainly sucks if you have one because I have I have one card in my collection that's altered. It was the first card I ever graded. It's a 1990 score supplemental Emmett Smith. Uh, my grandpa bought it for me for Christmas, like right when Emmett broke the record. And um, I sent it in to get graded. First card I ever sent in comes back authentic altered. I'm like, what, the, what the hell is this shit? You know, yeah. in 2004 or five, whatever, you don't know that that exists. You know, I didn't know. It and it, no, it still happens too. And like, you're going to buy cards that are altered if you don't look over them too fast or you don't like always look over your cards if you're spending a ton of money on it. Obviously in 2004, 2005, I don't expect that card to be crazy money where it is today for like the nines and tens, but it sucks. I hate it. Yeah. Gaming part of the hobby where people do that stuff. It's do funny, it. Emmett, then that card in particular is probably one of the cards that was more expensive in 2004 than it is today. Really? That's yeah. Crazy. You know, when Emmett broke the record, that was the hottest card in football. You know, that was $120 raw all day. I remember that price. That price is ingrained in one my head. I remember seeing it in the Beckett, you know, it's 120 all day. And then grading, I don't know what it went for. No one looked that stuff up. But when you look at the prices of that card today, it's it's you know relatively cheap. Curious. Let's see what let's see what it is. I have one at PSA right now. Oh, do you? Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't know what a PSA 10 goes for. That might be tons of money. And I don't know what it went for back then. But, you know, from a raw perspective, it's definitely cheaper now. So a nine. And there's a million of these cards. That's the other thing, too. So a nine right now. There are some for like 122, 125, and then a 10. So there you go. I mean, a nine is going what? what raw went for 15 tens or, tens or $1,500 all day. Yeah. That I would imagine there's a huge, I mean, you know, it's the 70 or the it's the nineties junk wax stuff. So I'm sure there's a lot of issues with it. That creates a pretty low tin pop. Yeah. Well, it's a black border at the bottom too. So that gets chipped really easily. Well, it's purple all the way around. So it's got the color, right? Just all the yeah. way around. Purple so. going up to the black at the top and bottom. Yeah. So that's so tough. Yep. Just chips. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah, good times, man. It's crazy. I don't know. I'm, you know, restoration's growing on me. People are gonna roast me for that. But if you if you can do stuff to the card without adding or taking it away, you know, what do I care? So, so that that card was not meant to have that crease. It wasn't printed with that crease. Somebody altered it and put a crease in it. And you're just unaltering it. Really, you know, I mean, I got no issue. <laughs> but uh, all right, man. Well, we've gone for quite a while now. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we head out? No, I think that's pretty much most of it. Okay. All right. Well, Ryan, breakout cards. Everybody go check out his YouTube channel. It is a good one. I really enjoyed the message that you send out there because it's knowledge. Knowledge is power. We all know that. And uh, I think you do a great job of diving into stuff a lot of people don't dive into and, uh, you know, just spread knowledge in the hobby. Hey, thanks, Dakota. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for you to be on the channel so I can see your PC. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching this. We hope you enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you.